hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. When there's a lack of lust 20 years into an otherwise loving marriage or relationship, many, if not most of my patients come to me thinking that their indifference to sexual activity is a result of declining hormone levels. And if I write a prescription for estrogen, everything will be just fine. And yes, a change in hormones definitely can be part of the problem, but there are a lot of other reasons that have nothing to do with menopause that impact on keeping that sexual spark alive which is why after I've helped with whatever hormone or pain issue someone has, I then prescribe a little bibliotherapy because reading the right book can be a game changer. And specifically, I tell my patients to read Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want by Dr. Alexandra Solomon. And today I am thrilled to be joined by the author of Taking Sexy Back. <laughs> Dr. Solomon is an assistant clinical professor at Northwestern University, an award-winning author, a TEDx speaker, and the host of the hit podcast, Reimagining Love. Welcome, Dr. Solomon. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Stryker. I'm so happy to be with you. I have about a million questions. I'm going to start <laughs> with this one. Yeah, there are a lot of experts, including many that I suspect you know, that say we're not biologically meant to be with the same partner for 30 years. But because it's the cultural norm, we're forcing ourselves into a scenario that's doomed to fail. So is the monotony of monogamy inevitable? Do we have unrealistic expectations to remain in love and lust with the same person for decades? <laughs> That's an easy question, okay. right? <laughs> I always like to start with the easy ones. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, I think it's really, I think it's so complicated, right? I think that in a way, sex in our grandma and grandpa's era was likely simpler because relationships were so heavily role bound and sex was seen as a wifely duty. So whether or not she wanted it was really didn't matter. It was all about whether or not he wanted it. And I'm using very heterosexual language intentionally because that was right. The predominant right, the norm. Yeah. And so what we've done, thank goodness, in the era of feminism and um, sexual health research, like we understand so much more about sexuality and we have a shifting set of relationship expectations. And so now we ask the question, like, do I want to have sex right now? Am I drawn to you? Am I attracted to you? Is the sex feeling good for me? Like those are those are in this context, a relatively new set of questions to ask. So when we expect to be able to maintain lust and desire and sexual connection over time, that's a different question, right? So we're, so I don't, I don't really get myself too twisted up about what's, what we're meant to do or not meant to do. But the thing I know for sure is yes, lots of couples remain sexually happy and connected over decades, but it's not without work and effort and care. And I think, of course, that's what we need to get to is is the work and the effort and the care. Mm -hmm. And which, which brings me to my next question, because, you know, the title of one of your podcast episodes is I love them, but I'm not in love with them. And I hear that 
every day. I mean, that's what my patients say to me. They come in and when they say to me, you know, I'm just not interested in sex. I have no libido. And and the first question I always ask, other than does it hurt and is it pleasurable? The question after that I ask is, well, do you like him? And they'll go, oh, yeah, I like him. He's my best friend. He's great. I just don't feel in love with him anymore. So can you talk a little bit about the work that needs to be done to, to bring that feeling back? Yeah. You know, it is, it is, um, it's so much about context. And I think especially, you know, especially in like the context matters so much. And in the pandemic, you know, many, many of us have been sort of spent a long stretch of time under the same roof, really stuck in routines. Our worlds have gotten small. And I think it has led a lot of us to realize that a lot of what sparks or, um, or triggers our desire is context. It's seeing our partner at a dinner party, you know, be charismatic with friends. It's having a hotel sex. It's traveling together. It's like those novel experiences. So certainly, you know, commitment and liking a partner and feeling invested in a relationship that matters, but what it takes to kind of activate spark and desire is a bit different. And it has so much to do with how we experience ourselves. Certainly, I know I feel a lot more desirous when I am relaxed, when I'm being gentle with my body and my figure, you know, when I'm um, sort of my plate isn't, you know, full with commitments and expectations, like those kinds of things will can open us up or shut us down. And then the context of the settings in which we get to experience our partner matter. But I think also what you're talking a little bit about is is perhaps the anticipation of being sexual. You know, when you are thinking, okay, we're going to go out to a nice restaurant and I'm going to, you know, shave my legs and maybe brush my hair, as opposed to during a pandemic when you're with, you know, same person wearing same sweatpants for, you know, six, eight months running, you're not anticipating, you're not going through the, the mindset of, I need to, you know, get ready for sex. Think about sex. How important is yeah. that? I think it's huge. I think it's huge. It matters. And I think that's why there's a set of thoughts that I think especially women who are partnered with men can get into, which is like, here we go again. He wants it. I know I should. Any train of thought that has to do with like duty and obligation where sex becomes yet another thing I have to check off my list in order to feel like a good enough partner, that's a total libido killer versus I'm shaving my legs and I'm going to put on something kind of sexy for me, right? Because that that reminds me that entering the space with my partner benefits me and benefits us, right? It's not a service I provide to my partner. It's a place that I get to go as well that I'm deserving of. Yeah. You know, in, in my world, I talk a lot about repair versus maintenance. And mostly I'm talking about vaginas, you know, like when your vagina is really dry, <laughs> you need to restore yeah. lubrication, which is then followed by the need to maintain it to keep it lubricated. So in your world, I'm imagining that like in my world, your approach is different when you're talking about maintaining a relationship that has some spark to it versus I haven't wanted to have sex with this person for the last 10 years, you know, bringing it to life. So could you talk about both those scenarios, the maintaining or, or and then the fixing it? Yeah, I mean, the repair is certainly when I've got, you know, I have couples that come to therapy and they haven't made it made love in years. Right. And so then we need to figure out we oftentimes start with like going rewinding the tape and going to a time when they really did enjoy sexual connection 
connection with each other, kind of doing some detective work and understanding like kind of how did they lose each other. And very often the repair is repair around relational wounds, whether that was a past infidelity that really never got attended to or, you know, missed communication, a partner who feels like they tried to express what they wanted in bed, but never were heard. And listen, we can, we can try to express ourselves. And if our partner doesn't understand us or hear us or listen to us, it could be because of lots of blocks. Like none of us grew up with the robust, holistic sex education that we really needed and deserved, right? So even if we're trying to communicate, if our partners, you know, feel like they don't know how to listen or that sex shouldn't be something that needs to get talked about, it's really easy to drift. And so that repair sometimes is forgiveness work about who we weren't able to be to each other and for each other and with each other because of our own kinds of constraints or because of relational wounds. Mm -hmm. Um, And so repair, you know, and that's, Repair isn't always possible, but lots of times it is possible, you know, and, and it takes oftentimes having the support of a couple's therapist, especially for talking well, that, about. That was my next question yeah, to you yeah. is, is certainly, I think when we think in terms of a, of a broken relationship, if you will, a relationship that does need repair, I think in most cases that that does require a professional such as yourself, a sex therapist, because it can be really difficult and takes an expertise. But do you think, what about for the couple that says, you know, we, we're fine. We, we like each other. We are attracted to each other. We're still being sexual with each other in a way that's satisfying to both of us. Mm-hmm. What kind of work do they need to do to keep that? And is there any benefit to seeing a sex therapist just as maintenance? Well, I am going to, I mean, I'm always going to take a pro therapy stance, but yeah. I think that, you know, I think that that is, um, yeah, just I, I would want, you know, if I was sitting with a couple and they really did report a, a rich and satisfying sex life, I really would want us to celebrate that. I would want to be talking explicitly about what is it they do individually and together that helps them create the conditions for them to enjoy sex. And then I would want to make sure that they do those things, right? And for some some people, it is it very much is um, how we care for ourselves, right? So if it is that each of them stays active and eats well and, you know, kind of feels like healthy inside their own bodies, if that's part of what keeps them sexually connected, then wonderful. Keep doing that. If it, it is a willingness, um, John Gottman calls it a low negativity threshold, this willingness to bring up concerns when they're just like the pebble in the shoe, rather than waiting until there's a huge blister, then I want to celebrate that. Like how amazing that the two of you have cultivated the kind of communication atmosphere where you can bring up concerns and the other person doesn't get defensive because all of that then translates into the bedroom, right? It's really difficult to feel desirous for somebody when we feel like we haven't been heard by them. We don't feel respected by them when we feel like we get, you know, eyes rolled at us when we try to bring something up. So... Yeah, the eyes rolling isn't just something your teenage daughter does, you know. No, uh-uh. <laughs> well, you know, no. the, what caught my interest is is one of your recent podcasts was about strategies to navigate conflict, and you described ten approaches. I think that was a two parter. There was so much you you had there, <laughs> and and obviously everyone needs to listen to both of those podcasts. But as a teaser, can you just mention if you had to just mention one important skill that will lead to conflict resolution as opposed to conflict escalation? Yeah. Well, um, which one would I pull forward? I think there's a lot, um, there's a lot that matters 
in terms of one of the skills was around like language choices, like just kind of tweaking our language that when we get, what's tricky is that when we get upset, our language becomes more extreme because I'm upset. I'm at risk of saying you always do this or you never do this, or I'm at risk of like um, confusing my partner's behavior with their character. And the tricky thing is the more that I do that, the more I sort of indulge in extreme language and sort of character assassination, the more upset I'm going to feel, right? So the arrow goes in both directions. So being mindful about our language choices, like really being specific, like in this situation, when you did X in situation Y, I felt Z. We do that. We try to be kind of tight and specific when we raise a concern, in part to keep our partner from getting defensive, but in part to keep ourselves calm and open. Because once we become flooded, we aren't thinking as clearly. Our bodies are too upset to be receptive to another person's perspective. And we are no longer talking like teammates. We're talking like opponents. And our goal is to win, to be right, you know, to kind of like hot potato the issue off of us and onto our partner. And so so those the the there's a responsibility on each of us to kind of be mindful of our language, even though sometimes we feel like I shouldn't have to. It's a it's a marriage. Right. I should be able to say what I want. These are just my feelings. And- or not just that it's a marriage, I should be able to say what I want, but because I'm right. I mean, you know, so as an example, let's say we, you know, we go circle back to what you said originally that you anticipate getting ready and it's date night. Yeah. So you say Thursday night is date night. And the woman's like, yes, excellent. You know, she gets on the wonderful underwear and she does her hair and she is sitting home waiting and her partner has forgotten that it's date night and yeah. instead goes out with the guys and then shows up two hours later. And at this point, you know, fuming, fuming, fuming. And I think my approach would be, you know, are you kidding? And you're a horrible (laughs) person. And we plan this and, but that would probably make things worse. Right. Right. That's right. So what's she supposed to do when she's clearly right? Yeah. (laughs) You also want to mitigate the situation and not make it worse. That's absolutely. Well, and I think one of the things that's tricky is that in that situation that you've got to be kidding me, how could you do this? You're a horrible person. That is a cover for what's underneath, which is I feel so hurt and I feel so embarrassed. And perhaps I feel a bit ashamed that I wanted and needed and prepared for this more than you did. Right. So that Mm -hmm. oftentimes anger and finger pointing is a cover for how incredibly vulnerable intimate relationships make us feel right. And that situation, like, as I imagine sitting for two hours in like my cutie pie underpants, like ready (laughs) and my partner forgetting about me, I would feel so heartbroken and heartbroken is hard, right? So finger pointy, how could you, there's a way in which that feels safe, almost like a suit of armor, you know, that like, you can't, you can't hurt me. But of course, the moment I say, or you say, how could you, and you're horrible is the moment that our partner is going to potentially, you know, back away or give us an excuse. And in the moment our partner gives us an excuse, that is going to feel further invalidating and we're going to feel further alone. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a tough one because you're right. The hurt very often translates to how could you do this to me? Right. And um, and I think that's a normal human reaction. You know, in in your first book, which I loved, Loving Bravely, that was when I was just getting to know you when you were were (laughs) writing Loving Bravely, but you coined the term 
relational self-awareness. And this is now the Alexandra Solomon term. So, (laughs) but it's, but so talk about that. Talk about what you mean by relational Mm self-awareness. Well, I first want to talk about when you, when you were mentioning um, that we got to know each other then I, what I remember most is how incredibly generous you were as I was on this journey. I remember spending, sitting in this room that I'm in right now, spending, I don't know, maybe even a couple of hours on the phone with you because you, you know, you had written books before our, paths had crossed and you were just so generous. And I remember saying to you on the phone that I promised to pay it forward. And now there have been and you have. countless authors that I have, you know, kind of followed the Lauren Stryker model of generosity. And I have sat on the phone and talked to people about the process of getting an agent and a publicist and all of the things. And so that's, I'm, I'm so grateful for. Well, just, you know. just to circle back to that. I mean, I, we did spend a couple of hours together because mm-hmm. I was just so in awe of you and your work and everything you were doing. And I knew you were going to be a rock star in this world, which, which you are. And but but that also led to an event that we did together, which was I've done a lot of events, but it was one of my favorite events. We had a, at least a thousand women in the room to talk about dating after 50, how to, you know, and it was with Bella, who I actually have a yes. podcast I recorded with Bella. And Bella talked about how to find the partner. You talked about how to keep the partner. And then I talked about, okay, now you're going to take your clothes off. And right. we we have got to do that event again because it was just beyond fun, beyond fun. It was so fun. It was really fun. I loved that event. I remember I had some of the members of my team there and it was just really special, like great energy, wonderful questions. Yeah, that was a really fun event. Well, I think that's the thing that we all miss the most from COVID is, well, it's been great to connect with many, many more people than we ordinarily would be able to. Um, by working remotely, but I know that you and I both like to actually be in the room and and take questions. Mm-hmm. So we will do that again soon, I promise. But yes, you've paid okay. it forward so many times, and I am so appreciative <laughs> of that. So, all right, let's get back to relational okay. self awareness. Talk about that. Right. So you know, I have I switch hats quite a bit during the week. So sometimes I'm a therapist. Sometimes I'm teaching graduate students or undergraduate students or clinicians. Sometimes I'm working on books or social media. Sometimes I'm a wife and a mom. But the thing that I realize is the through line, no matter where I am or which hat I'm wearing, my work is always focused on helping us understand more deeply who we are and the kind of internal landscape, the love template, as I call it, that we bring into our most important relationships, usually our intimate relationships, but sometimes we talk about parenting. And that and that my own history, my experiences in my family of origin, my gender role socialization, my personality, my trauma history, all of those experiences that I, the, the baggage that I come into my relationship with shapes how I show up, what I feel like I'm able to ask for, and how I perceive moments and exchanges with you. And then same thing for you. You come in with your own set of baggage that's informed by your family of origin and your gender role socialization. And so the work of relational self-awareness is understanding that baggage. It's opening up the suitcases and looking through the baggage, not to beat ourselves up, not to blame our parents, you know, not to point fingers, but just to understand. So relational self-awareness is an ongoing, curious and compassionate relationship we take with ourselves that helps us understand what's happening in the space between ourselves and our partner. 
Which is the other phrase I hear you use a lot, which is unpacking. And I'm assuming that's what you're referring to is unpacking that baggage. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things of the many hats that you wear is you're a professor, of course, you teach a very, very popular course at Northwestern University, Marriage 101. And as, and I and I know many of your students in that course. Um, and don't you actually have them do a little bit of that unpacking just as a, as a um, kind of a... A strategy to learn more about their future clients, you know, talking, I, you know, interviewing their, their own parents, perhaps, right. and right. finding out about their own baggage. That's right. Yeah. The, the, and these are, you know, this year we're teaching, we just started, we're in week four. We, um, it's 108 college students who come to Marriage 101 from all over the campus. So we do have some students who will go on to become therapists, but that is a minority. We have yeah. math majors and theater majors and journalism majors and engineers who come to this class because they know it's a very unique 10 week journey really into themselves. And you're right. The heart of the class is relational self-awareness. And so the assignments are all, you know, they, they're not writing literature reviews or conducting research um, or writing theoretical papers. They are really mining their own family system, their own relationship experiences. So you're right. The kind of final capstone project of the course is they go and talk to ideally their attachment figures, their caregivers, their parents um, to understand, you know, we, when we're little, we're absorbing all these messages based on what we observe the big people doing in our homes and how we are related to mm-hmm. by the big people in our homes. And all that um, socialization and conditioning is implicit or the most of it is implicit. So this project is a chance to make it explicit by having conversations. It's also a lovely sort of like milestone in terms of beginning to relate to your parents, adult to adult, which is yeah. all of what, you know, emerging adulthood is about is seeing your parents, not just as your parents, but as a, as adult and letting yourself be seen by your parents as an adult. So very often that's this really cool side effect of the assignment is that they feel like it opens the door to new kinds of conversations with these people who, you know, used to change their diapers. So this really <laughs> sounds like, like work that someone doesn't do within the confines of a couple or relationship, but that you do on your own. Mm-hmm. And am I correct? And that, you know, when, when someone reads loving bravely, that this is work that you have to do by yourself before you can then take that to a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly over the years, couples have read Loving Bravely and it's, and it's written, you know, it's written in a way that you can read it on your own or you can read it with a partner, but you're right. It is, you know, the heart of relational self-awareness is I'm learning about myself in the service of my relationship with you. So it is self-work that fuels intimacy. It's really hard to be intimate with somebody who doesn't understand their own interior or who is unwilling to look at their own interior, right? Intimacy Mm -hmm. is about that turning inward and then sharing and then taking what you've shared and bringing it back into yourself. It's like this kind of figure eight, you know, between introspection and sharing. Mm-hmm. So while we're on the topic of your books, because you do have two of them and they're very different, but um, and everyone should read both, of course, but I want you to talk a little bit about each one in terms of how they're different. Do you need to read Loving Bravely first and then read Taking Sexy back? You know, where does where does each one kind of go? Is are both for everyone or, mm, okay. or for a specific audience? Yeah, I love the idea of reading them in order, though you you don't need to. Loving Bravely is um, 
it's the foundation of relational self-awareness. And that was your um, first book. Just that was the first one. Yep. And it was when that book was done, I kind of knew in the back of my mind, like, oh, wow. In that first book, we really didn't talk much about sex and everything that has to do with our own experiences are just that much more intense when it comes to sex. So there's something under the umbrella of relational self-awareness is this aspect of sexual self-awareness. So I kind of knew even when Loving Bravely was being born that I had another book in me that was about sex. And so that became the second book and really taking sexy back because because our sexual experiences and our gender role socialization are so tied together. I really did write Taking Sexy Back for vulva-bodied people, for people who've been socialized in the feminine. Um, so I think certainly gay men have read the book and found benefit in it because many of the messages are transcendent, but it very much is about what happens to girls and women, all the messages that we are given about what it yeah. means to be you know, good versus bad, a prude, a slut, like all of these. And then just information. Like there's a diagram of the clitoris, which I know you are, you know, <laughs> infinitely more skilled at talking about than Look I will clitoris model here. I usually hold that up right. at this point. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, things like that, like where in order to have great sex, you have to understand your own body. And there's been this like systematic, you know, obfuscation of the poor clitoris. Yeah. But I, <laughs> but I think absolutely. I mean, you're, you know, you're speaking to the choir here, but I think it's also the expectation and you, you've mentioned it a, a few times, but the whole idea of that a lot of times girls, unlike boys are not brought up or they're not socialized to, um, to know that they are entitled to having pleasurable sex, that it's not just pleasing the guy, but, mm -hmm. but sadly, a lot of girls don't get that message um, because their mothers don't tell them and no one told their mothers, you know, it's that's just, right. and, this, and that's this, right. And it's propagated. Mm -hmm. and, right. and I'm also wondering in your, in your course, when you have your students go back and, and talk to their mothers, do you give them a specific set of questions to ask, or is it more freewheeling? And I'm wondering if you do, if one of those questions is, do you enjoy sex? Did you right. ever, you know, that's right. Well, there's a huge question bank um, that the students get and they can pull together their own unique set of questions that they want to explore. And in fact, there are some, I call them like the 10,000 foot view questions. Like if students are really quite reticent to go there with their parents, or if they have a sense their parents are going to be kind of shut down, they can ask kind of these like more general questions about what trends do you notice in marriage or what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were my age, these sort of general ones. Yeah. But then there are questions about sex. I don't think there's one, do you enjoy sex? But that would be a really interesting one. That would be a really interesting uh -huh. one because, you know, when I talk to doctors all the time and, and, Obviously, I think that doctors don't talk to their patients enough about sex. And they when they do, they don't ask the right questions. They ask maybe, are you sexually active yes. or but they never say, are you having pleasure? Do you have an orgasm? Mm. And because we are socialized to think even as professionals and who do have a right to ask those questions within the confines of our offices in a professional capacity, we don't ask those questions. And I think part of it is because they're almost is a societal belief that women shouldn't expect to have pleasure. And, and I think these are such important questions. So, all right, so I'm going to out how we actually first met each other because I don't think that's really private or really a secret. Um, my daughter, who is a sex mm -hmm. therapist, Rachel Zarr, um, she was one of your graduate students 
And she, of course, is one of your biggest fans and made me one of your biggest fans. But I remember as a graduate student, I was the recipient of that questionnaire when she said to me, I am going to ask you all of these questions. And we sat down. We had a wonderful conversation. And Rachel and I are very open and and close anyway. But I remember the burning question I had for her when it was all done was I said, "Okay, so did you interview your dad? And she said, yeah. And I said, and what did he say? And she said, I'm not going to tell you that. And I thought, oh, God, this is so unfair because you've gotten to learn about me and you've gotten to learn about him. But I really want to know what he thinks. So that brings me to my next question. Should couples be having this conversation with each other? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yes. So just, I mean, I know I said it to you before, but I adore your daughter. I think she is, she just is uh, wonderful. I am, I am here. I am one of, I'm one of her biggest fans for sure. And I know she was um, a marriage one-on-one teaching assistant and she and I have, uh, and she was on my book writing team. She's been a huge, just a huge um, support. And I'm so excited to kind of keep, you know, to stay in her corner and, and um, stay in near her as she grows. So you said when you wrote um, Loving Bravely that you had another book in you, which was, of course, taking sexy back. Do you have another book in you? (laughs) I do. Yeah, I do. We are. um, Yep. I am in conversation and getting close to um, signing the next book deal. I'm really excited about the next one. I don't think I can quite talk about it yet, but yes, I am. That's something for us to look forward to. I'm so excited about that. You know, so when we talk about repairing relationships and and maintaining relationships. But very often what it really comes down to is a woman will come to me or will come to you and say, I just don't know if this relationship is worth maintaining. I don't mm-hmm. know if I should stick with it. You know, and that ultimate decision, the decision to continue a relationship or end the relationship. And I'm not talking about someone who's abusive or there's, you know, real issues there. I'm talking about just someone who says, I love him, but I'm not in love with him. I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. And um, I'm a little bit older than you. So I don't know if you remember Ann Landers, the old advice. Sure. I faithfully read every single day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember she actually had a column about this, that when someone said to her, do I stay in the marriage or do I leave the marriage? And her answer was, well, it's very simple. It's never simple. But she said, it's very simple. You just decide if you are better off with him or better off alone, because if you leave your marriage, expect to be alone. I am guessing that is not how you answer that question. Stay no, with I, him or end, or, or end the relationship. Right. I do. Uh, I do appreciate the simplicity of that. Of course, as a you know therapist and a writer, I've got you know I have to unpack and explore all of the angles. But yeah, I do. I do think it's quite difficult. You know that the episode that you referenced of the podcast that I love them, but I'm not in love with them. I, mean, we, I spent an hour talking through yeah. how to sort of think about that. And I think very often one of the things that comes up is I think it is very disturbing and confusing for women, um, because what we're talking about here, when when we shift from spontaneous desire to responsive desire, I think that shift is confusing and sad and can create the conditions where we can really scare ourselves, right? So we know that very often early on in a relationship, there's a lot of spontaneous desire where we want sex and we're sort of driven by this like urge and kind of a sense of horniness for our partner. And that you know, for a lot of people, especially the research is indicating women, 
you know, who are a bit, uh, you know, who are sort of mid towards midlife women, especially those in monogamous relationships are at risk of having spontaneous desire fade and be replaced in part or altogether by responsive desire. And so I think that that absence of longing and yearning can feel confusing, right? Like I, maybe I'm not in love with them anymore when really if one has the education and information about responsive desire, then it becomes, how do I turn myself on? How do I create the conditions where I want to have sex, where I'm glad afterwards that I had sex? And then the whole situation can become a bit less scary. So that is sometimes what's happening. You know, when we talk about oversimplifying things and particularly that um, the goal of I want to want is what I call it. You know, you, you know, people who say I don't want to want anymore. And there, as you know, there are two FDA approved pills um, to help with libido, flubanserin, which is known as Addy, and, and bremelanotide, which is Vilesi. And you're not a prescriber, I'm a prescriber. So women come to me and say, I, <laughs> I have no desire for sex. Will you please write a prescription for one mm-hmm. of these pills? And I, like you, think it's a lot more complicated than that. And there are very, very few situations in which writing a prescription is actually going to help. But I'm, I'm wondering, what do you tell women um, who come to you and say, I hear there's a prescription, a pill that will help me want sex more? What, what's your response to that? Yeah, I, mean, I think very similar, very similar to you. Like, I'm all about having lots of tools in our toolbox. And if that you know, if that pill does create just a little bit of a shift that then she can capitalize on, her partner can capitalize on, then I, I would certainly be in support of it. But yeah. I also I also would want to talk with a woman, and I know that you would do this too, talk about like, are you, how is the sex that you're having? It's very hard to want something that doesn't, that does that, well, certainly that doesn't feel good if there's pain, but right. also it's hard to want something where, where there's just not a lot of, um, reward, intrinsic mm-hmm. reward. And so it may be that a partner, you know, perhaps a partner is shut down or a partner is not attentive or afterwards. Like, so I would, I would want to kind of talk through that whole sexual script. What's happening before what's happening during what's happening after. And are there little tweaks we can make in that sexual kind of repertoire where she feels you know, afterwards, like she loves laying there in her partner's arms or she loves the pillow talk afterwards. And then that becomes kind of part of the motivation, you know? So just looking really in it with a, with a microscope at all the, you know, little facets of what's happening and where there are blocks that maybe she's not even paying attention to. Because again, if we're talking, especially about pleasure, so many of us as women are taught to be restrictive, right? Around pleasure, around appetite, around desire, around greed, you know, around hunger. So we can, when we're restrictive, we aren't, the question about like, what do I want is a question that women sometimes don't even know how to ask themselves. They're so used to saying, what does everybody else need? And then if there's anything left for me, I guess I'll take a little, but that shift is so big. And it, and I think there's a way in which what the work we do outside of the bedroom comes into the bedroom, but also the reclamation work that we're doing in the bedroom around pleasure and desire and wanting can also fuel us outside of the bedroom, you know? Well, I have to, you know, of course, yes. And the concept of is the sex worth having is yeah. my, my daughter very often says, and, and in fact, Certainly when a woman comes to me and says, I don't want to have sex, the first question I ask as a gynecologist, well, 
the last time you had sex, how did it go? And you know, well, it hurt like hell. Well, your vagina is not stupid and your vagina is going to tell your brain, don't go there if it's going to hurt like hell. Of course. So so yes, you have to get rid of the pain. But to your point, you always talked about pain is one thing, um, which you must eliminate, but is there pleasure? Do you have an orgasm? And so often a woman will come to see me and say, I'm not able to have an orgasm when I'm having intercourse. And I'll say, okay, that would make you normal. Um, how about when you're self-stimulating with your, you know, your hand or your vibrator? And they're like, well, sure, you know. And then it's an it's a disconnect between her partner knowing what she needs. Um, but the other thing is is that when a woman comes to me and asks for a prescription for a medication, and I do believe that they can be useful as a kickstart, if you will, just to kind of get those neurotransmitters um, in your brain that all important dopamine, you know, kind of rev it up so that you're thinking about sex more. But I always tell them it's really futile to take a drug if you're not also going to do the work and and see the sex therapist um, to work on your relationship and to work on what's going on. And these women are so resistant. They are so resistant. And I not to the pill. They want the pill. They are so resistant to the idea of sex therapy. And, And I don't know if it's because they don't know what's involved. They don't want to do the work. They don't want the time commitment. What do you think it is? Why are, why are women so resistant? I, well, I don't know that I, I don't know for sure. I think a lot of it is we have swallowed so much freaking mythology around love and sex, right? What we see in media, romantic comedies, pornography, is that if sex is not seamless you know, without language, effortless, glamorous, and gorgeous, we are doing it wrong. Something is deeply wrong with us or with our partner or with the relationships. I think part of it is sex therapy confronts the idea that sex ought to be seamless, ought to require no communication whatsoever, ought to be beautiful, you know? So I think the pill is like, please don't make me have to be vulnerable and have conversations that I have no idea how to have. Um, just give me something to make so I can keep doing, because I can keep sort of pursuing what in my mind is the end goal, which is easy, effortless sex. And so I think it's just, it's sad. Like there's a, there's a, a heartbreaking that needs to happen around, no, you were sold a bill of goods. You were sold a set of unhealthy, problematic messages about what sex ought to be and sex in the real world and sex in real relationships takes effort and takes work. And that's not because anybody's doing anything wrong. It's just because Mm. sex is immensely complicated. It is immensely complicated. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, you know, people are looking for the quick fix and we see that on social media all the time. I follow you on social media, of course. And, and with my own social media, very often someone will say something like, um, sex hurts. What do I do to make it stop hurting? And my response is, well, that's really complicated because there are a lot of things Mm -hmm. that can cause pain during sexual activity. And that's actually why I wrote an entire book about it. And I can't possibly tell you in one sentence on Twitter or Instagram (laughs) how to to fix your painful sex. And people get angry. It's yeah. yeah, They're like, Uh well, what you just want me me to buy your book. Well, no, but I'd like you to get some help. And I can't tell you in 20 characters or less how to fix it. That's right. And and that's frustrating for me. I'm I'm sure it's frustrating for you yeah. as well. Absolutely. Well, in 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 those exchanges, right? What's being revealed is a level of entitlement, not just to a quick fix, but to answers that come that where the answer just comes to them, right? They don't want to do any of the work. Right. So I think there's a way. Yeah, and that's 
I think it's, you know, for all of the beautiful things, I think that social media, you know, opens up. I think there is a way that it fuels this idea that there is, if I just keep trying, there's going to be an easy answer that does not require me to get vulnerable, to peel back any layers. So look at my own trauma history, my own, you know, um, past experiences. And there's just... Um, you know, you, you've mentioned trauma a few times now, so I do want to circle back to that because in, in the clinic that I run, the Center for Sexual Medicine, we actually provide trauma-informed care. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I have a, a YouTube video on trauma-informed care, and we will be doing some podcasts. But could you just briefly, as best as you can, talk about when you're talking about trauma in the work that you do, is there a particular kind of trauma you're talking about? Because everyone defines trauma differently. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it is, and it certainly is a topic, but thankfully, we're talking about, I think, much more than even like 10 years ago. I think that there's the, the field of trauma science has come a long way. And tra- traumas are those experiences where it's too much too soon, you know, where we have an uh, um, experience that is overwhelming, that overwhelms our capacity to cope. Um, and oftentimes, you know, in my work, I'm talking about sexual trauma. Um, so, you know, via consent violations, um, sexual assault, all of those, you know, all of those experiences that one in three women, one in six women, one in, well, in college mm-hmm. campuses, it's at least one it's in 20. four. I yeah. know that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, very often and we're not even talking about young girls that experience serious sexual trauma, but even as young women, Mm-hmm. It's it's quite common. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, and trauma, you know, there's there's the overwhelming experience, but then there is the absence of care and support afterwards, right? So what's not able to be spoken about, you know, the actions we aren't able to take, the sort of not having community around us to care for us afterwards. So those are the kinds of things. It's the it's an overwhelming experience in which there's not a sort of loving, compassionate witness to help us make sense of it. Because the thing we know is that trauma-informed, well, trauma-informed care, certainly the way that you, I know, do it, just right. keeps people from, from feeling hurt yet again, right? By another, um, you know, right. by another Even in a loving relationship, mm-hmm. very often past trauma is really what informs that relationship from going forward in a positive way. Right. And that's, right. that's difficult. And then on the flip side, in a, in a healthy, loving relationship, um, a, a healthy, loving relationship after trauma can become a powerful catalyst for healing, right? Certainly, if a woman comes into an intimate partnership with a prior um, sexual trauma, she will need the care of a licensed mental health professional. But she also then in the context of her intimate partnership can experience deep healing then when her partner is able to ensure consent with her, make sure that they're staying present with her, make sure that where she has the ability to kind of go slowly, especially in sexual experiences and stay present. Um, I know that I had um, Dr. Holly Richmond on um, my show. I wrote the foreword to her new book called Reclaiming Pleasure, where she really is. She's got wonderful expertise around survivors of trauma who, um, you know, helping them sort of integrate that experience so that they can not just have the pain of the trauma stop, but actually be able to, as the title implies, reclaim pleasure, right? That's what trauma does not, trauma does not break us, but trauma does disconnect us from ourselves, from our bodies, from um, our sense of entitlement to pleasure, but that's all. We need to do a whole nother episode just on trauma. But just to circle back to where we started in terms of the possibility, the hope that you can be with a partner for decades and decades 
and that you can maintain that sense of not only loving someone, but being in love with someone and enjoying being, and it doesn't have to be sex per se, but being physical to be Mm -hmm. sexual. So tell us, Dr. Solomon, (laughs) can we do that? Is that possible? We can. I suspect you're doing it in your marriage. I know I'm doing it in my marriage. Certainly it is not, it is not a steady state, right? It's not that I experience you know, tons of desire for my partner at every moment of the day. But I love that I'm, that I know I've got some touchstone things, some touchstone context where when I'm engaging in the practices that I know help me feel calm and grounded and open and available. And when we are working together to cultivate the kinds of experiences that we know create connection and create desire, certainly that is the case. And the research backs that up. There's, there are lots of couples who continue to enjoy. I mean, I think that I probably enjoy sexual connection with my partner more now than I did in the beginning. I think that there's just a loveliness to um, how well we know each other and the value, you know, in our connection and mm-hmm. how the, the kind of sacredness of that ability to find each other again and again after so many years. So it absolutely is, um, is possible and doable. Um, and, and I would argue, you know, worth it. Absolutely worth it. And I think, again, you know, there's a difference between maintaining this and finding it again, you know, finding love Mm -hmm. again, if you will. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, you know, I think that's such an important message because I see so many women who just say, well, it is what it is. And I'm not going to have that as part of my life. And there's a sadness. There's a real sadness. And that and that Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be. So last words. What's your the last words that you would like everyone to know on this topic? Mm, well, I I think maybe my last words would just be um, to to give yourself permission to be a lifelong learner that there and to have that be exciting rather than shameful, right? Even if you had even if you had a pretty good sense that you had your sexuality figured out when you were 30, you keep changing. So you need to and get to retool yourself at 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 because because we all, you know, we're all moving targets and that means our relationships are continuing to evolve. So that means that we get to keep learning and I love that there are podcasts like yours and mine and books that are available and that we have these resources and we don't have to have it all figured out and that we ought to feel pride um, in our willingness to ask questions and bring in the tools we need rather than shame about that. I love that. That's perfect. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Check my program notes for links to Dr. Solomon's book to follow her on social media. You've got a newsletter. You know, people tell me I'm busy. You must be working 23 Mm. hours a day and just sleeping 10 seconds. So (laughs) I appreciate you taking this time with us and thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great. I loved being with you. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my inside information books available on amazon.com and follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Taking calls.
Sometimes I feel blue She helped me see the light Now I'm sleeping through the night 